is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SUP China, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo and Jason McRonald for editing. This week, we have Roseanne Lake, author of Leftover in China. It's where Factory Girls meets the vagina monologues in a fascinating narrative on China's single women, the source of its economic future. We, of course, discuss her book, but also the steps to get there and get published in both English and Chinese. We also chat about her subsequent leftover monologues, censorship on women's issues, and she leaves us with some valuable advice at the end. Let's give it a listen. Hi to everyone from Ta for Ta. We are very excited today to have author and journalist Roseanne Lake on the show today. Welcome, Roseanne. Hi. Thank you, Juliana, for having me. And I think you know a great place for us to start is just to ask you about how you got involved first in reporting in China, and then from there, what actually kept you reporting on China? Well, I think like a lot of good China stories,、um, mine starts in a similar fashion in that it was pretty much an accident. Um, it was 2009. The U.S. economy wasn't looking so hot, and China had just had its big coming out party. Right, the Olympics had happened. All eyes were on China, and I grew up speaking and studying Romance languages, and was always curious to sort of test my real linguistic chops. Like, am I really good at learning languages, or is it just that the ones that I speak all sound pretty similar and you know e- are easy to pick up? So it was the combination of this curiosity around China that the world seemed to be having at that moment, and this desire to pick up some Mandarin that led me there on a short reporting stint.、Um, I took a sabbatical from my really nice job、uh, with the French government in New York, and was only supposed to be gone about three months.、Um, but when I got to Beijing, I did something that changed everything. I bought a Dianlongke,、um, an electric and e-bike. It was hot、mm. orange. <laughs> I named it Fanta, Fanta, like the soft drink. And Beijing just kind of opened up like a fan on Fanta. I could ride around in gnarling traffic and take in these sounds and these sights and these smells and the chaos of what Beijing was at the time. And I remember being struck by buildings going up at this dizzying pace, but sharing a bike lane with somebody driving a giant wagon full of baicai that was. You know, piled just as high as one of these buildings going up, and it was really, really infectious. And I realized very quickly that three months wasn't going to be enough for me to learn Mandarin for sure. It definitely wasn't as easy as a Romance language, and it wasn't going to be enough for me to wrap my head around this place. And、um, I stayed much longer <laughs> than I ever expected I would. I stayed five years. How long did you think you were going to stay? Three months. That was the plan. And so, what happened at that three month mark? It just felt like there was no way I could leave. I was a single mother to a, a, a Vespa, right? I needed to stay and support this Vespa, <laughs> and, and 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 sort of continue to figure out this place. And you know, getting started, right? Finding a place to live, figuring out how to pay your gas bill, and you know, all of that. 
feels like such a, a momentous thing, even though it's it's all silly stuff. Just getting through those first hurdles feels like you've accomplished so much. You're just like, I've invested so much energy. Like I'm just getting started. There's no way I could go home now. And it just seemed far more interesting than, you know, anything that would be going on at home. So I thought, I don't know, maybe I would stay uh, another year. I mean, basically, I, I sent a very nice email to my boss. And as much as I loved him, I said, I'm sorry, I, I really appreciate the sabbatical, which made the decision to come to China rather effortless, but I'm not coming back. And that was it. I quit my job and got a new one in China and started a very new life with Fanta. I love that. And when you were saying a single mother, I totally thought you were a single mother of a human, <laughs> of a child, not of the best friend. It's that very strong very responsible parenting or brilliant parenting had I, you know, put a child in a backpack and had we gone off to China. But no, it was maybe. Fanta <laughs> was my sidekick for five years. You know, <laughs> I rode that bicycle everywhere and had so many breakthroughs on it. And uh <laughs> Just as, as someone who in the back of that bike, <laughs> as someone who also had a Dianlongcha in a fourth tier city in China, I really, really do empathize. It's a very strong connection you that you make with. Yes. I, I definitely empathize on that front. So, when did the Economist come into play for you, and how did that relate to your work in China? Where did that part of your career experience come into play? It actually didn't relate to China at all until much later. Um, the Economist was kind of the responsible job that I took when I got back to the U.S. And surely my experience in China helped me get hired there. Um, but I wasn't doing anything China related to begin with and still do very little. I mean, you know, some features and things for 1843. But um, my China career and my work for The Economist have been pretty separate, actually. It was like, all right, going home now, um, <laughs> going to, you know, uh, maybe take the subway or walk or Uber instead of, you know, zipping around on a Dianlongcha and yeah, start a different, different sort of pace of life. So, OK, let's revisit The Economist later, but when you were on sabbatical and decided to take a new job, what sort of series of jobs did you have in China and how do you think that helped influence your work later on in your career or more recently in your career? Well, when I was in China, my first job was at a TV station. I don't know how much it influenced my career, but it certainly influenced my decision to sort of stay in China and my understanding of of the place, right? And also just being there. Like I remember very early on before anything in China made sense, as if it makes sense now, 10 years later. Um, I remember I was riding my, my bike and uh, I came up to the second ring road, right? At Dongjimen. So that really gnarly intersection that kind of looks like it was designed by a truant pizza slicer or something. I remember there was just a woman with a stiletto heel uh, in her hand and she was like pounding it into the forehead of a man. And I remember being struck by two things. One, that her heel was really, really sparkly. And that got my attention. It was covered in rhinestones. And two, the fact that she was just pounding it with reckless abandon into this man's head. And he was sort of taking it. I just thought, wow, like something seems really afoul with the state of romantic relationships or male-female dynamics in China. And the fact that this is all being played out on the street kind of underscored the fact that you know, doing this in a very sort of reckless way. Like there was no sort of order or science initially to the way I, I was, my ideas were being formulated about, you know, women in China or marriage or dating in China. It was just things that I was taking in that made you think, this is different. I sort of want to figure this out. And I guess, I don't know, my career ever since has sort of been that way. It's just been these little itches of like, 
oh, this is different. Something feels off here. What can I sniff? And, you know, what can I figure out? And what can I try to explain? And I guess China was also very formative in the sense that, you know, I now cover Cuba. And both China and Cuba are countries that have a pretty contentious relationship with the United States. Um, I would say Cuba more so than China, but it's also a much more important relationship, right? The one between China and the US than Cuba and China. But I've sort of I don't know, I gravitate to sort of these countries that are almost the underdog as far as the the impression that they have in sort of the eyes of the American public and try to show like, despite these very different political systems that they have and, and, and different values that they have, there's certainly something that we can learn from them. And there's certainly interesting things happening there. And that's something that emerged sort of later, but it's all sort of been rather accidental and led by just, you know, these little moments of curiosity that lead you down a rabbit hole and into something a little bit deeper sometimes and into nothing at all at other times. But I think maybe that's a trend in, in how I decide what I'm going to write about. Yeah. So where did this first itch come from about Shengnu and, and understanding this phenomena in China? Well, I think one of the first was that scene that day in Dongjimen, right? Like this woman hammering this heel into her, into this man's head. And, and that was just something that really stuck with me. And I'm thinking, what is going on? Mm. And, you know, you would see couples breaking up in restaurants or sitting along the Liangmecha Canal fighting. Sometimes they would be canoodling and getting along. But that didn't often happen. Like I was seeing sort of more violent, out, not, not always violent, but sort of violent in the terms of like raised voices and things like that. And mm, it stuck out to me, but it didn't really start to sort of send up a flag until I went to India. Um, I spent some time in India and it was kind of like everybody was talking about India, right? India and China, these two really important economies. And I thought, all right, well, I'm living in China now. I should probably go to India and see what the fuss is, what all the fuss is about. And that's fair. Yeah. <laughs> when I got there and spent time in public and in parks, I realized that, you know, even though there's a marriage and relationships are very heavily orchestrated by elders, which is true to an extent in China. Mm, it's a very, it's done in a very different way. I didn't understand that at the time, but that's very clear to me now. But the outcomes also seem different. Like I happened to be there over a holiday weekend and in the park, you would see people, younger couples together doing leisurely things and appearing like there was like a romance about what it was that they were doing. And I realized I hadn't been living in China that long at the time, but that was missing. I wasn't seeing that sort of affection. You would see it maybe between, you know, seventh graders or, or early high schoolers. But once people got to a certain age, it seemed like their behavior, like the behavior between the sexes, the affection that was expressed changed. And I think I kind of just fell into that pace of life in China and it didn't really stick out to me until I got to India and realized, wait a minute, like it's completely different. There's something slower about the way humans are interacting here. And when I got back to China, I think that kind of put things into a different gear. I thought, wow, there is something very different going on here. And why? Already I had been surrounded by leftover women where, you know, at work, that was a soundtrack that was already playing in my head. Like you have all of these women, they're having a hard time finding partners. And then, you know, you go to India and you realize, wait a minute, like there seems to be so much more partnership and affection and expression of, of romance or love 
in you know similar age groups what is so different about china and i think that trip to india encouraged me to sort of dig even further than sort of what my initial curiosities may have prompted so how do you go about actually digging into those hypotheses or that itch how do you further develop that so you went to india you realized that there was this difference then where do you start Oh, I mean, it's a hobby at the beginning, right? Like you're not writing a book. You don't have a plan. You're just curious. And I think the best way to start is just kind of by being an open book. I think I was incredibly lucky in the sense that I was surrounded by these women at the workplace. And, you know, whenever we did overtime or whenever we traveled for a story, we were stuck on a train together or on a plane together or in a taxi together. And you know, we had that sort of proximity to sort of build trust in one another. And initially, a lot of this just started as a conversation. It was like, you know, they came back from Chunjia as the book starts, as I explained, like that was kind of a, a key moment, like, wait a minute, they call you leftover and why do you have this pressure? But it was that exposure to them and the fact that I was in the same age group, but that I was from another country where they sort of understood or or were curious about how things worked, right? They knew that New York was home to sex in the city and they were curious to know, hey, wait a minute, like, is dating like sex in the city in New York? And I was like, absolutely not. I'm a journalist and I cannot afford the shoes that Carrie Bradshaw buys. <laughs> it is a complete fallacy, the entire show, right? Like, you know, you you start to exchange these things. They, they, they were curious. They wanted to know what dating was like in the US and if there were similar pressures to get married by age 25. So I willingly answered all of those questions and then asked my own in return. But then eventually we would get to questions like questions that I had for them that they couldn't answer. Like, well, why is it so hard to find somebody to date? And like, you know, why don't you just do something crazy? Like if it's so awful to go back without someone over Chundia, like there's so many more men than women in China, you know, surely it should be easy to find one. They should be sprouting up around you like mushrooms, given the numbers. Take one home for the holidays and split after, you know, make your life easy. And I was kind of saying that in jest, but it wasn't something that they were joking about. They were very serious. No one could provide a good answer for why they weren't finding partners. It was like Meishijian or like right? It was just things. And that wasn't a satisfying enough answer. I knew there had to be something else. And of course, in the back of my head, you had this niggling idea that like, well, but there are so many more men. Like, where are they? Right? Where are they being hidden? I'm going to find them and I'm going to bring them to the office and I'm going to fix everything. Um, So it was that, yeah, that curiosity and that perseverance. But I guess what, what really facilitated the task was just like the incredibly fortunate fact that we were in the same age group, we were spending a lot of time together and they were curious and I was curious and it was just a mutual exchange of information. Yeah. And I mean, it seems like relationships and marriage are almost this beacon in China. Uh, in some previous speech that you gave, you said that a former party official once told you <laughs> that, quote, marriage in China is the wind chime upon which all changes in the socio-political climate are announced. I actually don't even know what he meant by that. And I was hoping that you could unpack that a little bit more. And from your perspective, why is is marriage and even relationships this wind chime, metaphorical wind chime? He's such a poet, isn't he? Bless him. Um, really? <laughs> no, actually, he did say that. And I think when he said it, I, I did remember it making sense to me. But it was only because I had been reading up on the history of marriage in China. And 
remember reading that like a post Qing dynasty pearl of wisdom was the fact that marriages were sort of the building blocks of a nation. And, you know, you kept order in a nation, especially a nation as populous as China, by structuring people into these neatly organized little packets of families. And depending on what the country needed or, you know, what sort of territory the country needed to annex, you might send a beautiful bride to a different part of the country, a beautiful woman to a different part of the country, you know, to be able to bring that territory as part of mainland town. Like you did all sorts of things and, and you used marriage as sort of a tool. His point was these units, like the health of these units or the status of these units is very indicative of the status of the country as a whole. And we had been talking about leftover women in that context already. And and just kind of, we were talking about marriage and infidelity, actually. He was one of my main sources on infidelity, on just understanding, like, why is this such a, a common thing in China and, and why do men do it? And he was very open about that. But the purpose of that interview, I remember sort of going in and, and wanting to ask him, like, are leftover women a source of concern? Like, you're a former party official, right? You should have some insight into how the government feels about this. Are they worried about them? And that sort of, you know, he always spoke in a very sort of poetic way, but that was sort of what he was getting at. You know, his answer was like, no, things are changing. And, and this former source of stability, these neat little packets that we, we organize people into the past are changing and it's destabilizing. But we're far more worried about the men. Um, you know, this is a concern that we're going to be fielding for many, many more years. We've got these leftover men that we're not going to know what to do with because there's so many more of them. We'll probably be seeing political changes in the future that reflect our best attempts to sort of mitigate this problem of men. So he was a uh, a fascinating uh, <laughs> a fascinating fellow and also just very colorful um, when he spoke. Yeah, actually, speaking of men, um, I think this was in TED Talk that you gave. You actually bring up this idea that the distribution of men is the cause of the issue of the ratio imbalance in China. I think you said that you know. In the year 2050, nearly all countries, women will be the dominant earners of higher education. But that's, I think, slightly different in China. And I was wondering if you can kind of help put those pieces together about the rates of higher education, potentially the mismatch in demographics with men and how that all comes together. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a it's a game changer, right? I mean, forget 2050. That's sort of when the rest of the world is catching up. China made that transition in, I think it was 2012. It's fairly recent. And that explains why we're seeing this rise of women getting married later or not at all, and having children later or not at all. But these are sort of two silver bullets that are hitting at the same exact time, right? You have on the one hand, women becoming more educated and more financially independent. And we know that a natural byproduct of that is that all of a sudden marriage becomes discretionary, right? If you know you don't need a man to survive financially, um, you're going to be probably more selective or you just have other things to do when you're 23, 24, 25, 27, 30, whatever, then think about, you know, sort of hitching yourself to somebody and building a life. That's something that I think a lot of women still aspire to do, but they're increasingly wanted, wanting to do it later because they have more options. So you have this population of women for whom, you know, marriage is suddenly discretionary and that's a very big departure from what was possible for, for their mothers or for their grandmothers who for political reasons, social reasons, economic reasons, just didn't have that choice, right? We know that up until the 90s, 
pretty much marriage in China was universal. Less than 2% of the population remained unmarried. So this is a very big deal with what's going on. Yeah, I think uh, I'm pretty sure that's the number. It's in the book somewhere. It's been a while. Um, So this is, you know, this is a very big departure. And then when you combine that with where the men are spread, the issue is sort of exacerbated, right? It's like, well, suddenly you have all these well-educated women who presumably, especially given sort of the dogged persistence of this idea of marriage hypergamy in China, right? The fact that men are supposed to marry down to women who are sort of shorter, less educated, earn less money, and women are supposed to marry up. Uh, we know, I mean, there's, there's research to show that, you know, in countries where as soon as that shift happens, when women become the dominant earners of higher education, marriage hypergamy rates tend to go down. China's been a little bit stubborn about doing that. And it's a transition that has been harder for them to make. And I think they will get there, but it's still very new, right? This is all, this is 2012. So they haven't even had a decade to sort of recalibrate <laughs> to this new reality. But when you combine that, you know, you you figure a lot of these women are going to be thinking in sort of terms that are somewhere along the lines of hypergamy. They're going to be looking for equals. I think, you know, when you get access to education, that's sort of what you require. You're looking for more equal partnerships. You're going to be sharing duties in the home and responsibilities a little more equally than maybe you would if, you know, you were out-earned or out-educated very significantly by your partner. But where are these men going to be, right? The supply is just simply not there. And it's not so much the fact that, you know, um, that the degrees don't match up, of these men don't match up. There aren't enough men, you know, with the same degrees or there aren't enough men with the same salaries. It's that geographically, they're not even there. Like the chances, even if, you know, if you had no regard for hypergamy, you wouldn't run into these men because they're stuck in rural areas of China. They're not nearly as well-educated as a lot of these women in urban areas. And they haven't benefited from China's prosperity over the past 30 years in the same way. We know that, you know, the dividends have been disproportionately paid out to people in urban areas. So when you have all of this come together, it basically just spells out the fact that there are going to be more and more women in China doing well, right, who are extremely well educated and and who have, you know, solid career prospects because they're working hard and and they're ambitious and, and it's important to them to have meaningful careers, who will have a difficult time finding partners of sort of the caliber that they're probably expected to partner with, which doesn't mean that they won't partner at all. It just means that it's a very different playing field and something that maybe used to be automatic, like you would graduate from college and, you know, there would be suitors and you would get married is now something that women, I think, need to be more proactive about if partnership kind of is the end game, right? When I was in, in book tour, on book tour in China last month for the Chinese version of the book, so many women would come to me and say, look, I'm a lawyer. I, I work, you know, 15 hour days. I don't have time to date. And as if it were my fault, right? I was like, hey, look, I you was know, like, how, how do I fix this? And it's kind of like, I wish that the fact that, you know, you were so intelligent and so accomplished made you immediately appealing and that you didn't have to worry about this component of your life. But the truth is, it makes it more complicated. Right. And you need to be you need to work even harder than most women to find a partner because you need to, one, make the time and then sort of navigate this marriage market. Because, I mean, I don't really like using the word market, but it sort of turns into that. And I don't think most Chinese people would sort of be shy about saying that, you know, marriage is in many cases transactional. That's what, you know, marriage under Confucianism was all about. 
you do have to work harder. So it's changed the rules of the game. It's, it's made it more competitive and certainly more likely for well-educated women in China to have a harder time finding partners, but also an easier time probably living more fulfilling lives and you know having access to things that their mothers and their grandmothers couldn't even dream of. So there's certainly a silver lining. And I think in the long run, they're going to be far better off than those leftover men who just didn't reap the benefits of how much China has changed as much as they did and who will struggle to find wives, to find jobs, the access to education or the ability to travel or any of those things just isn't as readily available to them. Um, so it, it has become more complicated, but um, there's certainly things to look forward to as long as, you know, people are aware of, of what the outcomes could look like. Right. And it's almost some of that's a more universal. Absolutely. Uh, I don't want to say problem, but challenge or some uh, friction for anyone in the relationship market, no matter where they are in the world. But it is, I think there are some unique, unique aspects that you've certainly drawn out in your book and that you're drawing out over the course of this conversation. Yeah. It's universal for sure. Um, the book's coming out in French in September and and the editor, the publishers there said, you know, we don't even really get married anymore in France, which they don't, right? A lot of people just get a fax or whatever, but they're like, we still find this very relatable because <laughs> of the situation that our women are in. Marriage doesn't even have to be mm-hmm. this like cultural burden that, you know, is sort of you're saddled with as you are in China. That's kind of the tse, right? Those are the Chinese characteristics that make it all the more interesting that you've got this population imbalance that you've got a generation of only daughters that have more access to you know anything that they ever have that you have china sort of on the on the on the heels of all this economic growth like those are the slow but at the end of the day you know what i kind of wanted china to understand was like you know pat yourself on the back you've joined the rest of the world you know your women finally have first world problems <laughs> like you know finding finding a partner um, to their sort of to their that, that meets their requirements is a luxury actually um, you know the, the 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 struggle to find that uh, the fact that you can even be so selective is a luxury and I don't know that we should celebrate that I'm not sure there are a lot of women that should go woohoo you know <laughs> we're suddenly too great to find uh, people that want to marry us but it is like I at the end like I kind of just want to say China look step back pat yourself on the back you didn't orchestrate any of this like none of this was done to you know give women greater access to anything it's just a, a freaky byproduct of of your demographic planet your population control and and the way your economy grew and everything else but like pat yourself on the back mm-hmm. and now don't mess it up right don't become japan don't become south korea take it in and 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 run with it right it's the biggest possible advantage that you could give yourself from an economic perspective or from a demographic perspective except that you were lucky enough for this to happen and you know let these women do what they want to do and what you want them to do for your country because at the end of the day i think those goals are freakishly well aligned yeah and i mean the thing too is that the rate of leftover women isn't going nope. down anytime soon and I guess with your book Leftover in China, did you find value in, so to speak, reclaiming the terminology? Do you find that that's something that you try to do with the essence of the book? So a lot of people have asked me, is there another name you could give these women if you could? Or can you reclaim the term? And I never tried to do either. I never tried to think of another term. And I actually never tried to reclaim it because I never saw it as a bad thing. I never took pity on these women and I never sort of 
felt bad for the situation that they were in. I always admired them. I mean, from the very start, it was like, wait a minute, you're in, you know, when, when I'm back at the TV station and I'm first understanding what it, you know, after Tundia, what first understanding what it means to be left over and seeing what a hit it's been to their self-esteem. It was very clear to me that, you know, they were being dealt a very unfair hand, but it was like, hang on, these women are the toast of the nation. You know, they should be, they don't deserve anyone's sympathy. They're doing very well for themselves. And Maybe, I don't know, maybe if by reclaim you mean put a positive spin on it, yes. Or But it, it wasn't even yeah. that. It was more just like get people to actually understand that it's a misnomer, right? That, that the word leftover doesn't in any way, shape or form accurately reflect the promise of this population. And I think it was more, I wanted to sort of clear things up. It was like, hang on, you've got it wrong, people. Why are you calling them leftover? Leftover is actually something that, you know, they should be proud of and you should be proud to have them. And actually, all of this started in 2009. So we're talking a decade ago. And a lot of the conversations that I had in China when on book tour and, and even now with some Chinese journalists are about precisely that, that how much the word leftover Shengyu has sort of changed how initially it was something a little bit taboo that people didn't really want to talk about to something that is out there. And that, you know, if women are portrayed in, or single women are, are portrayed in, in, in an ideal way and a way that's not ideal, um, immediately, like you see on social media, people will start attacking a brand that does this improperly, or people are a lot more vocal about this. And something that I don't think would have happened 10 years ago either would be you know, like I would have young girls come up to me and ask if I could sign their book. And I noticed that they were kind of young looking. And I'd say, how old are you? One of them came up to me with her teacher. She said, oh, my teacher's just gone to buy your book. She'll be right back. Will you sign it? And I was like, your teacher? Why is your teacher here? How old are you? And she said, I'm 16 and I'm a leftover woman. And I was like, good heavens, you're starting at 16. She was excited to tell me that she was leftover. She was telling me about the second company that she had just founded. It was Cricket Protein Energy Bars and how she just wasn't going to have enough time to get married by the time she was supposed to. And therefore, she had just embraced and accepted that she was left over. And not, 10 years ago, nah. I mean, after Chunjia, women were still licking their wounds. It was temporary. It lasted a week or two, and then they bounced back, um, fortunately, because it would have been a really miserable experience in the office. But that has changed very much so. So I don't really think I had to do anything other than just sort of recognize from the beginning that they didn't need pity. Uh, they certainly didn't need me to, you know, <laughs> to, to, to spin the word around. They, they kind of just did it themselves. Um, and, and maybe I helped a little bit by, you know, writing about it and, 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 and whatnot. But um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm, I, I know that there are women who feel differently. And, and interestingly, my Chinese publisher was like, no, do not put the word leftover in your book. Women will not take kindly to it. So it was not in the, it was not in the title, right? Um, the, the Chinese title is Dan Shen Shidai. So there's no Sheng Yu anywhere in the title. But um, I definitely think the vibe is changing, yeah. thankfully. Yeah. And so interesting. I think I just actually want to even ask a little bit more of like the logistics of writing a book. I mean, you were a journalist and you'd had various other roles before writing a book, but how do you go from these sources of information, these statistics, you know, speaking to the poet, to actually finding a publisher, writing a book, going on a book tour, getting a Chinese version of the book, getting a French version of the book? Can you just talk a little bit more about, you know, someone's listening to this podcast and wants to write a book that ends up eventually getting published in China? Where do where do they start? What do they do? What was that journey like? <laughs> I wish I had a more exciting answer. Um, 
but (laughs) (laughs) well, I think it could be the process of writing a book can be summarized in two words that Joe Lusby of of Penguin in China shared with me a long, long time ago. Uh, She just said, bum glue. You glue your bum to a chair and (laughs) you write until you fill the screen and you do it again every day for a very, 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 very long time. And eventually something will materialize. Um, and I don't know, I think a lot of it comes down to that. There's not, you just have to do it. There's no magical formula. I think the most important thing, more important than bum glue actually is I'm actually not sure that you choose to write a book. I think you're fortunate enough to stumble across a topic that you become obsessed with, that you're just fascinated with. And you know that you can sort of tirelessly, research and edit and rework and stick by for the time that it takes to publish a book, especially a first book, right? Because when, you know, you don't have a lot of clips to your name and you work for a television station in China that not too many people have heard of, it's hard to get an agent and you need an agent in the US to even start getting close to publishers. They won't consider your work unless you have one. So even just getting the attention of an agent takes a while. So you just really need to feel that conviction that you know, you're fascinated by a topic and you have endless energy to sort of spend researching it and understanding it. And you're willing to stick by it and you're willing to accept all sorts of rejection. Forget about the publishing process. I mean, there were, I don't know, at least 40 agents that turned me down. Um, Lots of them would say, fascinating topic. People in the US will not care about it. Uh, The names of your main characters all sound the same. That's pretty racist if you ask me. It just takes, you know, you just have to be really determined that, you know, you want to tell a story that you think is important. Uh, you want to see if you can help change some thinking or or clarify this misnomer, right? Hang on. (laughs) They're not, you know, they're not what the, what this word that they're called implies. Then it's bum glue. So first is just being captivated and being lucky enough to be in that situation. I feel really grateful that I was. And after I finished, I kind of had a moment of panic of like, will I ever be so into a topic again? Like, I I wondered for a while, and then I realized that I would be. (laughs) Um, But this being the first was was extra special, for sure. But yeah, it's it's bum glue, right? It's sitting down, it's figuring out which agents have represented books in a similar genre, or uh, other authors that I admire, or, you know, whatever, doing that research and, and personalizing emails and sending it out to them and getting some sort of feedback from them saying, oh, send a proposal. And you're like, oh, great. And what the heck is a proposal? And then, you, know, you figure out what on earth is a proposal. And you realize it's this horrible document that's completely antithetical to the book writing mm. process, but you have to do it anyway. So you sit down and you do a proposal and then you send that out. And then, you know, finally you get an agent and then everything is with your proposal. So you have to rework your proposal. And after you spend a whole lot of time doing that, you know, then you start going out to publishers and, and, and then things start feeling real. But, you know, I had put in several years of work on this before anything was real, basically right up until I had been working on it from, from when, you know, those early curiosities in China straight up to 2015 when I signed with a publisher. So a solid five years of, of working on it, not knowing what was going to become of it, but just, you know, really wanting something to come of it. And so giving it that time that it needed. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications, Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. 
The workshops include hours of one-on-one -on -one attention. From college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications, Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street, B-R-A-T-T-L-E street.com. Helping you get where you want to go. What was your relationship like with your publisher once you got into that writing process? I mean, did you have any like major overhauls or did you have to scrap a chapter at any time? How did you overcome maybe a big obstacle in the actual process? The biggest obstacle we had was actually title related. Um, we had a lot of back and forth over the title. The writing process was actually really, really smooth. And I think a lot of that was because they really liked the proposal. When I went in with my agent for a meeting with them before we had signed, they said, this proposal is really well done. And I was like, oh, I mean, I think I have to credit my agent for a lot of the just helping me structure what a proposal was, because I, I still don't understand. I mean, proposals I find incredibly annoying. <laughs> it's just like, this is not a book. Why are you forcing me to write this very formal document that, you know, is, is devoid of sort of the zest that I want to give the writing, but you have to do it. And it's kind of your roadmap. And of course, things change. I mean, my biggest struggle was like, well, you know, how am I going to give you a summary of every chapter of the book? Like things are going to change or whatever. But we had a really solid proposal. And, and a lot of that was... Mm. Uh, uh, that ended up being the book. So there weren't too many surprises in that regard. The, the editing process was actually really, really smooth. It was just the title that, you know, I had a title that I really liked and they thought it was garbage and I wasn't really going to take no for an answer. <laughs> so there were lots of, lots of intense phone calls and I lost. Um. <laughs> oh, what a shame. And I, I mean, I think it's great that there is more literature continuing to develop and, grow in the space just covering women and covering China and giving voices to the space. I, I do have to ask, in writing your book, Leftover in China, why didn't you read Leftover Women, The Resurgence of Gender Inequality in China? I would just say that, you know, if you search on media, there were some events surrounding you and another offer, and that's a few years behind you. What did you take away from that experience post-publishing your book? I mean, I think it was a really great experience to have about one week after publishing my first book because it really sort of threw me into the thick of being an author. I didn't read the book because it came out, I think, in 2014, and I was already leaving China at that point. I mean, my book was my ideas were formulated. I mean, all I was, I was focusing on getting a publisher and, and getting it published. Much of my work was done. It was kind of, I was in a very different place at that point. I needed to focus on getting the book out, finding a home for it and, and, you know, finding a way to sort of showcase this work that I had been doing for all this time. So, you know, all along in my research process, I've relied on, on the work of a lot of Asian scholars. They're cited in the book and their work is there during the research process. But, you know, when hers came out, it was kind of, I was done with mine and, and focused on a very different place. But the experience the sort of the, the, <laughs> the issue that she took um, with my book was very enlightening, actually. I learned a lot about Twitter, uh, <laughs> which is a platform I don't usually spend a lot of time on, and a lot mm -hmm. about the China Watcher community. Um, there were a lot of people in the community that I respected. There still are a lot of people in the community that I respect. Um, some that I now respect less because of certain ways that they behaved and information that they recycled that wasn't correct. And in the moment, I understand, you know, really big accusations are being made and tempers are high and, and, and people are 
because maybe they know somebody, they think, okay, well, this must be true. And they're recycling this information or retweeting this information and things sort of get out of control. But there wasn't a whole lot of fact checking in that process, as, as we know now um, <laughs> to be true. And that was disappointing to see. It was like, well, if these are the people that we're relying on for getting our news from China and it's this easy for, you know, tales to be spun, maybe this is, you know, this is reason to sort of uh, to sort of reevaluate, you know, who in the community uh, or, or just, I don't know, kind of the, <laughs> the China community overall. I was um, I was disappointed with some of the actions that that took place there, but at the same time, also not too focused on it, because what you realize when you publish a book about China is that it's not really for the China watching community. I mean, that's your community. And of course, you want it to be well received and respected in that community. But if it's not, it's a really big world out there, right? There are a lot of readers. And actually, I think at the end of the day, it's a lot more valuable for people outside of that community to, you know, come in contact with the book, to read the book, because they're actually learning a lot more about China, right? Most people in the China watching community are aware that leftover women exist and, and maybe they won't learn as much. So it really sort of, you know, forced me to focus my efforts on on other communities, which was wonderful. I mean, communities of, you know, American women who were in their 70s and 80s were some of my most fervent readers. And they would show up at events and they would say, I was one of these women when I was going to college and I was supposed to get my MRS degree and I didn't get married till I was 45 and it was scandalous, but I was the CEO of an insurance company. And, and, you know, like they're sitting there and it was, it was so, it was awesome to sort of, you know, have been able to sort of bring this to their lives or, you know, readers who had considered adopting a, a girl from China or who had adopted a baby girl from China and were curious to know what their lives could have been like. Exposure to all of these audiences, which is sort of where I focus my efforts, because these were the people who were reading and, and responding and engaging with me at events, that ended up being really, really cool. And, you know, it was also a huge test, right? Like, it's not pleasant to be put in that situation. And, and certainly there are more civil ways of going about it rather than sort of what happened on Twitter. But, you know, this is an experience. This is probably, it's not the last book that I'm going to write. It's probably not the last contentious topic that I'm going to touch on, although I'm not sure this topic is that contentious. So it's just prepared me for, um, you know, for what comes next. I, I feel like I've been baptized and I'm ready to go. And it also seems like there was something else that grew out of your book. I have to ask about the leftover monologues and where did that come from? Tell us more about some of the stories that actually get shared through this play. I think I've caught some video clips of it and Yeah, really so that was 2014. Um, this was right before I was leaving China um, that the leftover monologues came to be. You ask why I wasn't reading other books. I was focusing on the leftover monologues. <laughs> um, I, uh, I had finished my first draft of the book at that point and I just had this feeling of I've done my absolute best to capture these stories, the stories of these women in a book. And I still don't feel satisfied. Like I, I've done the best that I could, but no one tells these stories better than the women themselves. So why can't I just create the opportunity for them to share them? I really wanted an audience. Like I thought people might think it weird that, you know, a Western woman spent this time trying to write about these women's lives. And I just thought, well, I want them to understand 
how funny these women are and how complex and textured their stories are and how brave they are, right? The, the tremendous pluck and resilience and grace with which they field marriage ultimatums from family members. I wanted to sort of put that in front of people's faces so they could sort of be the journalists. They could sit face to face with these women and hear their stories in the same way that I did and sort of understand the fascination that I had with their stories. And so that's kind of what happened. I was biking one day, everything starts where I'm biking. And I passed, um, I was biking around the Forbidden City in that area, Dongsu, primarily before, before you get to the Forbidden City. And um, I saw this beautiful theater that had just gone up. And I thought, wouldn't it be amazing to do this production, you know, in this place? And I thought, this is China. And, and contrary to what a lot of people think, I've always felt like everything is possible in China. <laughs> I've always felt a lot more freedom um, in China than anywhere else. And people don't really understand that if they haven't spent time in China. But I've always felt very liberated in China. And so I kind of went home and I thought about it. And the next day, I just called the theater. The person who picked up was uh, working at a cafe that was attached to it. And I explained what I wanted to do. We set up a meeting. I went in and, and I told him about this crazy idea to put on a play in this in the spirit of the vagina monologues. But it would be about leftover women and some men, because I didn't want to make it exclusive to women, who would be talking about their relationship with this word leftover. I didn't have a cast. I had no idea if anyone would even sign up to, 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 tell, to share these monologues. But I was just enraptured by this beautiful space and he gave me the space so I was like crap I've got to make this happen like he's given me this space he just gave it to me it was a new cafe he wanted to sort of you know um bring you know bring some foot traffic in so he just gave me the space so I was like all right I've got to put on a play so I wrote up a casting call and like I said earlier this is all very haphazard There's, <laughs> this is how I do a lot of things uh I put together a casting call and I knew a lot of the girls who were involved with Lean in China and so they helped me circulate it. Think Tank Beijing helped me circulate it. We just sort of popped it out on, on WeChat. And I started getting women and men responding and saying they wanted to be a part of it. So um, we held our first sort of informational meeting. And and I think on the spot, I kind of decided what it was going to be. People would, we were kind of hashing out topics, different things that people wanted to talk about. And we realized really early on that we didn't want it to be leftover as in you are a leftover woman, you are over 25 and you are not married and you are leftover and this is what your monologue is about. We knew that that was far too restrictive. And that kind of wasn't what the book was about either, right? It, a lot of like the main characters in the book happened to be all single women, but there was certainly much more to them than that, right? So we started talking about leftover in terms of like leftover topics. So like if you imagine having a meal, um, at the end of the meal, there are always, you know, some crumbs left on the table. Those crumbs are what we meant by leftover. The stuff that gets left on the table after a meal and that you just brush away and forget about after all of the, the main course has been, you know, enjoyed. And digested. Uh, we wanted to take those crumbs, those taboo things, those forgotten things, those things get, that get brushed away and that don't get discussed. Uh, we wanted to give them some space on a stage. And that's kind of how the leftover monologues came to be. I mean, there were women who discussed, you know, bumptious matchmakers and blind dates and, and all of that good stuff. But there were a lot of other topics that, you know, weren't being discussed as much. And I think that helped me realize that it wasn't my job to to reinvent the word leftover or put a more positive spin on it. It was just to let women talk about what it meant to them and not just the fact that they weren't married, but all these other things that were very linked to the fact that they weren't married, sort of byproducts of the fact that they weren't, or even the reasons why they weren't, to be able to discuss those, those topics 
um, in a, in a, in a theatrical setting before an audience. And, uh, it came together like that. I mean, there were people who said, Oh, I have an idea, but I can't talk about it before a crowd. And then they would see other people doing it and they wanted to do it and they ended up doing it. And I didn't give any restrictions. We kind of, I just sat down with everybody. We had 16 monologues in the first show. It was horrendously long. I will never do that again. Um, but, um, I just said, you know, we talked about different topics and it was everything from body hair, right. To, you know, depilatory routines to, orgasms and masturbation to rape to mother-daughter relationships to matchmakers to the importance of a man owning a house like it was all there and everybody just or being a female PhD so how education played into your marriage prospects and we just um I sat down with each person and we sort of you know found the granule of, of what their monologue would be about they went away they wrote it brought it back we would edit it together and then rehearse and we did the show and it was meant to be a one-off in this theater, just kind of something I wanted to do before I left because it felt like unfinished business after having spent so much time collecting the stories and writing them. But it was incredibly popular. We had to turn people away. Oh, that's a flood alert. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear it. Oh, shush. Okay we had to turn people away. And so we ended up doing it three times that month and people started calling it the leftover and over monologue, leftover and over and over monologues. Cause we did it so many times. We've done it seven times in the past five years. Uh, the last time being in May when I was last in China. Um, and it got written up in the economist before I even worked there. So it was, uh, it was, it was a whole lot of fun and just something quickly about what I learned from the experience. That first year Please. we did it, it was these leftover topics, but everything, you know, these crumbs that get brushed away, but it was all still related to marriage and the search for a partner and what that meant and why women were struggling with it. And I left China in 2014 and, and came back in 2015 to give the TED Talk. And um, when I came back, it was post-Feminist Five. So Wei Ting Ting, who had been in our play, uh, had spent 38 days in jail along with four other women. And it just didn't seem like the safest time to be doing a play like this. But I reached out to the girls in the, the girls and guys in the WeChat group. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to be back in China. Do you want to do this again? And they said, yeah, absolutely. We have to. And I said, you know, given this. And they said, no, we have to do it again. And so I said, all right, if you think we need to do it, I'm here. We'll do it. And we did it in Beijing and in Shanghai that year. And it was funny because one of the cast members was engaged and pregnant and two of them were in serious relationships. So they were no longer left over, technically, right? Which shows you sort of the futility of the, the very strict definition or the narrow definition of the word. They still wanted to be in the play. They insisted on being in the play. And they said, no, 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 no. Of course we're still left over. And I said, what do you mean you're still left over? You're, you're pregnant. <laughs> like, you're, you know, um, you've, you've, you've done it all. Like, your parents are glowing. And she said, no, of course not. I mean, just because I'm about to be someone's mother and I'm now someone's wife doesn't mean that all of the skill that it took to be left over. And by skill, I mean the ability to resist, right? The ability to resist pressure and that societal wave, tidal wave, pushing you into something when you know it's not right for you at the moment, it's not right for you. That skill, that resilience that is required to be left over, to sort of be brave enough to be nonconformist and untraditional. If you know that something is not the right path for you, that's that little germ of leftoverness 
doesn't just serve for, you know, fielding marriage pressure. It serves for fielding off pressure to have a child when you don't want to have one or a second child or a third child or a job that you don't want to take or a place that you don't want to move to or a decision at work that you don't want to accept. It's a very valuable skill to have. And they wanted to underscore that. And it really made me realize like, yeah, we don't need to reinvent this word. Like leftover is something that we should all be and that we should all have because it's just a valuable personality trait to have. And, and once you do have it, you end up doing a lot fewer things that you don't want to do. Um, and they also sort of wanted to share, like, you know, at one point they had been so enamored with the idea of falling in love or with being with someone. And they wanted to explain what that process over the past year was like. And it's funny because ever since that happened. So that was 2015. Um, one of the girls who in 2014 was single and in 2015 was partnered up and very much in love um, and insisted on doing her monologue again and even sort of gave pointers to the, to the audience of sort of what to look for and, and, and sort of what tipped the scales, right, from, from her actually wanting to be in a committed relationship. Then and between 2015 and now ended that relationship and is in a different relationship. And it's funny to see how her uh, I guess her most desired traits in a partner have changed. Um, so before, you know, when she was very, very young, it was all about romance. Mm. And, you know, in her first monologue in 2014, it was just like, I just want to feel those feelings I felt in college when I was dating, you know, this athlete who I was just wild about. So that was her monologue in 2014. In 2015, it was about the very different feelings that led her to be in the stable relationship with this partner. And by 2018, when she was in this new relationship, she said, all of those emotions and all of that romance is nothing. Finding a man who can cook is the most important thing. And I just really, I enjoyed the process of seeing their parameters evolve and just seeing them grow up and having a better sense of who they were, who they are and, and what they were looking for. And the play has been such a valuable vehicle for putting all of that into context for me, that it's, it's something very special. That's really lovely and I just I wish that I'd had the chance actually to see the monologues because it's seems like also just allowing the voices to come to the forefront and really providing this space for that just adds this level of enhancement of what you captured I think in your book and I I just really I think that's such an exciting development of how leftover in China grew um, and continues to grow and evolve and is able to change uh, with the stories and change with the women. I do have to ask as well, I mean, with the book, with the monologue, you really got by relatively <laughs> unscathed from Chinese censorship. Uh, I mean, you even mentioned that you had one of the Feminist Five, Wei Ting Ting, in one of those iterations of the monologues, and you got published in China. I mean, why do you think that there wasn't a level of censorship that, I mean, I, at least I was, would have expected? Yeah, other people were expecting it too. Um, I remember a, 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 a journalist showed up to the leftover monologues and I was like, hey, what are you doing here? Um, you've seen this show three times. And uh, he was like, oh, no, just happy to be back. And then I bumped into him a few days after that show. And he was like, yeah, I was there because I want to be the first to report on it getting shut down. And I was like, oh, nice. Uh, thanks. <laughs> but um, it didn't, right? We we did get by relatively unscathed. And 
I haven't uh, made any promises of firstborn children or kidneys or, you know, I haven't signed myself away. I also don't have an answer for that other than the fact that, I mean, I think, you know, going back to that poet, that former party official, and this idea that marriage is the wind time upon which all changes in the sociopolitical climate are, are announced. I don't know. I think sometimes we underestimate the powers that be and their ability to sort of understand that these women are a force for good. It's certainly not everyone that feels that way, right? You know, there are people who, who feel differently, who feel like this is destabilizing, that women should be married. And, and, you know, there's definitely a heavy hand of tradition weighing down on all of this. But at the end of the day, I think the Chinese government is pretty pragmatic. And they understand finally, or, or they've understood all along, who knows? I mean, I don't know what they're thinking, that this is not a bad thing. I've never gotten the impression, you know, that, that they wanted to cause harm to leftover women, or I don't know, I, I just never got that, that sense. And I think that's probably why they would allow us to do the play. Um, you know, we weren't, we weren't, do, I, I mean, I guess we were doing things that were, that, that could have ruffled feathers, but no, we never had an ounce of trouble. And, and even with the book, I mean, it came out on April 15th in China. Um, and it was supposed to come out on April 1st. And I was in China for, um, an event with the Yenqing symposium. So I got there at the end of March and I was like preparing for this, you know, book launch on April 1st. And my publisher called and they said, your book's not coming out till April 15th. And I was like, Oh no, <laughs> what's happened? You know? And they said, well, you know, the Liang Hui just happened. And I said, yes. And they said, um, your book mm -hmm. has been printed, but it hasn't been bound. And there are documents um, that, you know, were required post Liang Hui that have taken priority. And I'm like, you're printing my book in the same place that you're printing Liang Hui documents? This is madness. Absolute <laughs> madness. And I thought that, like, you're printing Gan Shen Shaddai, right? This, this manifesto about, about you know, the, the celebrating single women. You're printing it in the same place that you're printing Liang Hui documents. Um, I thought, it's just not coming out. Like, I'm here for no reason and, and whatever. And they said, no, 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 April 15th. It's, it's the time that we need to get the books printed. And sure enough, by April 13th, it was being shipped out for anyone who had pre-ordered it on Dangdang. They absolutely delivered. Um, the book became a bestseller on Dangdang and on JD. And there's been tons of coverage on different WeChat accounts and Chinese media. Um, and I just keep getting invited to more stuff. Like I, I haven't been, I've been, you know, I've been to events with the All China Women's Federation. Uh, like the government is aware that this book is, is, is out, right? They had to vet it every single yeah. word. And, you know, the Chinese version is, is different. There are bits that have come out of it, but it is still very much the same book. And um, I don't know, I, it's, there's no, like, there's no concrete answer to it, but I just think that, at the end of the day, they've, they've realized or, or they knew all along that, you know, these women aren't a bad thing. And of course, with China, you also just never know what the thresholds are, right? Like something like the Feminist Five, you think, well, those women, like I know Maidza had done way more sensational things than what she did that day, right? By putting up stickers for awareness of sexual harassment. She and Wei Tingting had both done way more sensational things. I mean, Wei Tingting, when she was in the play, um, was talking about how she discovered that she liked women more than men and, you know, was talking about masturbation and all sorts of things on our stage, right? Stuff that is way more sensational than, than what she did. But in China, I think part of the a part of the the mystery around it is that you never know what the threshold is and that's part of the power it's like because you never know what the line is to cross 
people sometimes become scared of crossing that line and or they cross it and they don't even know they've crossed it and they've gotten themselves in trouble. I feel like we've been very lucky and I'm, I'm not entirely sure why, but I, I think some of it has to do with the fact that I'm telling a positive story, a true story, but I'm telling a positive story about the women in China, you know, that is very tightly related to the economic growth that it's seen already. And it's also, you know, it's future economic and, and, and demographic growth. And someone in the powers that be has to understand that these things are, are very correlated, right? That women are going to be an incredibly important part. They have been so far over the past 40 years, and they will be going forward, that it's probably in their best interest to be kind to them. And of course, we don't always see that, right? We see a lot of negative headlines about China, but I don't think those are all of the headlines. There's 650 million women in China. So we need this plurality of voices and of writers and, and scholars writing about China and, of course, of women themselves telling their stories. And I'm seeing more and more of that because these women are reaching out to me and they want to do things together or, you know, a documentary or a show or a podcast. They, they increasingly sort of are, are contributing to that conversation. I mean, it's their conversation. I'm just kind of, you know, I pick up words here and there and <laughs> and, and, and try to make sense of it. It's their conversation. But I just think deep down, you know, the very bottom line is it's understood. Like I've, I've told a positive story, a true and positive story about what I believe these women mean for China going forward. And they mean good things. And, and so you need to be, you know, you, you need to be aware of that. And I think we do see very gentle signs of that. Like on my last trip, I was very surprised that Beijing and Shanghai had eliminated the penalties for babies born out of wedlock. That to me is a pretty significant sign that it's like, whoa, wait a minute, you're letting unmarried women, single women, leftover women, have children. Um, you're sort of morally validating that by taking away the penalty, or you're at least making it possible, right? You're probably not morally validating it. And even if you are, society is not. It's actually, it's a big deal that the government has done that, but it's not that much of a game changer because there's still a lot of women who probably wouldn't dare do it because the social flack would be much heavier, which is the same with marriage, right? Like, you know, the government can go on all day long about what they want women to do, and they're not going to listen. It's what really gets to their core and sort of rattles them or keeps them up at night is, is what the neighbors think. It's what their parents think. The social is, is always so much more powerful than anything else in China. But those signs, right, or the fact that, you know, surrogacy is technically illegal, but they're definitely turning a blind eye to all of the black market services that are happening in China. All of these things are, are indicators that, you know, they understand women are going to be the ones you know, giving birth to future populations that are very much needed in China because they've seen the writing on the wall in, in Japan and South Korea and Singapore. There are plenty of cautionary tales out there. So I think for all of those reasons, we've, you know, knock on wood, been okay. And I'm very grateful for that. Very, very grateful for that. So what's next for you? What's in the pipeline? I mean, I've seen that you have a recent comedy skit on YouTube, Home for the Holidays. What else have you been working on, at least within this realm of your book, the monologues, women in China? What, what well, are you Well, we did a monologue <laughs> to Yen, and I, that was also, I mean, I just learn every time I do the play. And this version was super cool because it was like the, the grown-up version. You know, this is 10 years on from, from when I first started meeting these women. And you had a woman giving a monologue. She was getting divorced that week. And she gave a monologue about the reasons for her divorce. And she was quoting Elizabeth Bishop. I mean, she was just, we took it to a whole new level. I was very impressed with her delivery, with her, I mean, just how articulate she was. And 
the emotion with which she spoke about something that was incredibly painful, right? I mean, to be going through a divorce after a 10-year marriage to your first love and to be telling 200 people about it is not an easy thing to do, but it's just a testament to the bravery of Chinese women and how they've never let me down, right? Like, I'm not sure we would have done the leftover monologues again that second time after the whole Feminist Five if it were just up to me. It was up to them, right? I asked them and they said yes, and they called the shots. I'm just the enabler. Right, the persistence. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Another woman... Mm-hmm. She, the last time I saw her, she was actually an original cast member. So she was in the play in 2014 and did it again in 2015 and has been in every show. And I said, what's going on with you? And the last time I saw her, um, she was thinking of going through IVF um, to have a baby with a man from France that she had been seeing. And that didn't really pan out, but that was 2018. And I get back to China and we catch up again. And she had adopted a seven-year-old baby boy. She was already a mother. And it was like, what, what, you know, like, she's like, yeah, I'm a mom. I'm like, I saw you 10 months ago. How did this happen? Um, she adopted a boy and, and she talked about that process. So we really sort of got to another level of like, you know, you're not just left over in your twenties or your early thirties. You can still, you know, not be married well into your thirties or into your early forties, as was the case for her. And that brings on a different set of things that go through your head, right? Related to fertility, related to, you know, wanting to become a mother and we, or divorce, dating again. And and we covered all of those topics in the second one. So that's something that that may continue. These days, book-related stuff, I'm focusing on the French version. There's a Spanish version in the works, which I'm super excited about because I talked about, you know, growing up speaking Romance languages. That's the one that I grew up speaking. My mom is from Spain. So I have Mm. just a deep love for the Spanish language and the Real Academia Española. And I'm really looking forward (laughs) to the Spanish translation. Um, And yeah, there was the film that we did over, um, over the holidays that I'm exploring possibilities of turning into something bigger. Uh, it seems like the moment is right. So um, there were people approaching me in China about um, about working on doing that. And there's some conversations that I'm having in the U.S. as well. So maybe coming to a, a computer screen near you uh, will be some more in-depth adaptation of, of uh, these topics. That'd be really exciting. I'm looking forward to staying abreast of that. I do, I think I have one last question for you today. Um, and I usually ask this of a lot of guests that come on Ta for Ta is, you know, what's one piece of advice that someone has given you in your past that you've actually found yourself given to someone else recently? When I was considering going to China, even just for that, you know, that three month stint, initially that sabbatical, my family was really kind of against it. They were like, and I mean, I think the only reason they continued talking to me was that I didn't quit my job entirely, my really nice job in New York. Uh, I I had taken a sabbatical. So there was some sign that I was going to be coming back, but they thought it was crazy, that it was far, that it was dangerous, that they were going to be harvesting my kidneys. I heard a litany of reasons why I shouldn't go. So I didn't get a lot of support on that front. Now I have tons. My parents have read tons of books on China. They're very excited about China. <laughs> they changed their 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 vibe completely. But <laughs> 10 years ago when I was considering the move, they were not on board. But a friend of mine, um, his dad was uh, a journalist at El País, the newspaper in Spain for a long time. And he had been a foreign correspondent. And I was on holiday with my family that summer. And um, I met up with him and I told him that I was thinking of going to China. And he just said, go. 
just go. I didn't have a plan. I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing there. Um, and I wasn't even a journalist at that point, right? I was fresh out of journalism school. Like, what on earth did I know? What on earth do I know now? But like then, really clueless. And he just said go. And there was something about the lack of reservations with which he told me to just go that really helped. And he was somebody that I, I admired and I really do admire. I mean, he's had a remarkable career in journalism, served a lot of um, in a lot of foreign countries and, and is just, you know, a super smart person. And um, that encouragement just made me think, well, you know what, if Josema thinks it's a good idea, um, maybe it's okay that my parents don't. <laughs> I'm just going to take off. And recently, mm. um, one of the one of the girls who was um, in the leftover monologues when we did it in New York last February, and she also directed the short film that we made home for the holidays. So she'd been studying at Barnard for a while, and I think just couldn't quite get over the fact that it was Barnard and maybe not Columbia or maybe not somewhere else. This was just her, you know, you know how tiny students can get sometimes, right? Like you just want to be, you want to be Ivy League, you want to be this, you want to be that. And, uh, and so she just kept sure. applying to different places. And um, one of her professors had been giving her a hard time. She wanted to study English literature. And one of her professors um, at Barnard had been giving her a hard time. She said, you know, I really don't advise this. Uh, your English really isn't at the level necessary for you to be, you know, a lit major. And uh, she said, I really want to apply to Oxford. Like, I, I think... I think I want to go to Oxford and I think I want to study English lit there. And I encouraged her um, very, very heartily to do just that. And she's been accepted and she's going in the fall. So I think she just, she wanted to go anyway. She didn't need me. But when she was having that conversation of like, do I go? Like, is this a bad idea? Can I even handle this? I think she just needed someone maybe a little bit older, slightly more experienced to just sort of say, yeah, like, of course. Why are you even thinking about this? Do it. And that's it. I mean, to sum it up in two words, like just go. Uh, if, if there's something in your gut that, you know, especially when, you know, you're, you're a kid in your early twenties, when you have this you know, feeling of wanting to go to another country um, and you're not quite sure why or what you're going to do when you get there, you're in your early twenties, just get the hell out of wherever you are and go do it. I love that. I think that's really great advice to end on. This is been such a pleasure and I'm so thankful that you've been so generous with your time, Roseanne, from discussing different components of your book to, to how it's evolved and all the different related networks, people, and learnings associated with it. This has been a really fruitful conversation. Not at all. It's been my pleasure. And you are excellent at this, I have to say. I felt so relaxed the entire time. And I don't know, the way you phrase your questions and your voice, you're going to be doing this for a very long time. I can sense it. Thanks for tuning in today. Ta for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Quo for co-producing and Jason McRonald for editing. Also make sure to check out the other great podcasts on the Seneca Network. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings can be directed towards ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.